1: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is David Patrick Harry with Church of the Eternal Logos. And today, tonight, this evening, I want to talk to you guys about the Mysterium Tremendum and provide an academic introduction to religious mysticism. And so tonight... We're going to be talking about mysticism, mystical experiences. How exactly is mysticism described and understood and studied at an academic level? What exactly unites Sufism and yoga and hesych- the hesychastic, uh, hesychistic practices, hesychia, of orthodoxy? What exactly unites shamanism and contemporary-day psychedelics? What exactly brings in the fold magic and theurgy and all these different things? Well, this very ambiguous and nebulous term called mysticism. So, tonight, we're going to ask the question what is mysticism? Can we give a definition to this concept? Well, it's not as easy as you might think. I think uh, for the majority of anybody listening or watching this stream, and if asked what is mysticism, you'd probably say something like the unification with the divine or union with the divine. This is the most common sentiment, but where where does this idea come from? It actually comes from Neoplatonism. It actually comes from um, um, from a redefining of mysticism from the Hellenistic period when... The mystery religions, a mystic rite, a mysterion, uh, is really just in reference to somebody who's initiated into a secret ritual or practice of knowledge. Again, we're going to get into the etymology of this word, but we'll see that the definition, the concept of what mysticism is, continues to change throughout history, uh, specifically in the Greek from the Hellenistic period, which it meant essentially. Uh, somebody who's been initiated. So if you had a mystical experience, it means you had an initiation right, really. And you can look at mystery religions, Mithraism, Zoroastrianism, the Eleusinian mysteries. All these things were mystery rites, mystery traditions that initiated people. But that's not how any of us understand what mysticism is. And so how do we get to the concept of the unification with the divine? Well, we're going to talk about that as well as other definitions, such as mysticism as an altered state of consciousness. So it's not necessarily, mysticism isn't necessarily tied to this union with ultimate reality. It could just be an alteration of one's neurochemistry. Or there's another definition of mysticism could be an intuitive insight, an enlightenment, a satori, an illumination, a Bodhi mind. Well, is that what we mean by mysticism? Well, some of us mysticism as human transformation this is actually much more in line with the arguments from bernard mcginn um uh, i got a few books from him here's one the bernard mcginn the foundations of mysticism origins to the fifth century now i would you say patrick that looks like a sweet book nice big talking about christian mysticism should i get it it's all right. Yeah, it's not bad. Problem with uh, my my personal critique of McGinn is he's way too Western focused. It's really focusing on Catholicism more than anything. I also have another another uh, book which is an abridged version of a Christian missing. I got that one right here. I'm not gonna get it out, but uh, but. That relates more to mystical understandings in with the Christian context is really about the transformation of the human, of the person. Now, that makes sense in relation to our very mystical theology of the Eastern Church, right? Well, why do we call it the mystical theology? Well, hopefully today, when we go through all these different definitions that have been presented throughout academia and scholastic approaches towards this topic, we'll see that, interestingly, orthodoxy we could say that our mysticism fulfills all these definitions. Um, also, one of the key things that I noted uh, is the maintenance of the personhood, the, the specificity, the uniqueness of the person, that in orthodoxy, obviously, we don't, we're not destroying our individuality to be one with the ultimate um, union of all things, the fundamental reality of creation or of divinity. That's not what we're doing necessarily in an orthodox context. Now, I've already filmed the second half to this video where I look at a variety of different mystical approaches within world religions. So I talk about early Christianity. We talk about shamanism and Sufism and Kabbalah and yoga and Buddhism and contemporary forms of mysticism. Now, that is going to be up, up the website pretty much by the time this stream is over. It's still uploading. But by the time this stream is over, it should be up over at the website for members only. So that is the second half of tonight's stream. And really, this is the first stream of another stream I want to do. So today, this stream is really going to be focusing on academia, scholastic approaches to the topic of mysticism. And I'm going to speak on that in just a second, a little bit more. But the next stream that I want to do, the next one after this one, is going to be focusing on orthodoxy in a mystical theology. What is mysticism from an orthodox context? Well, this stream isn't going to be focusing on that, per se. This stream is focusing up um, on the scholastic approaches in the next stream so scholastic approaches to mysticism that's what we're talking about and then if you are interested in the different practices of mysticism within world religions that's on the website for members next stream is going to be on orthodoxy orthodox theology and mysticisms where we're going to get into the mystical theology who is this gentleman right here who knows anything about saint simeon the new theologian very important very important gentlemen uh, again, there's only three theologians within, within Orthodox. we got St. John. here, uh, Right there, St. John the theologian, author of the Gospel of John. We have uh, St. Gregory the theologian, Gregory Nanzianzus. And then we have St. Simeon the New Theologian. So the next stream will be focusing on mysticism in regards to Orthodoxy. Tonight... And the reason why I entitled the stream Mysterium Tremendum, how many of you guys have heard of that term before, that phrase? That phrase, Mysterium Tremendum. Hmm. Sounds like a tremendous mystery or something of that sort. Well, that's exactly what it is. And I'm going to introduce you guys to a gentleman who I've, I've spoke briefly about in other streams. His name's Rudolf Otto. How many of you are familiar with the gentleman named Rudolf Otto? He's a German theologian german theologian um he was a philosopher he was a lutheran he was a comparative scholar of religion and combating some of the naturalistic arguments and critiques of religion he came up with a definition of religion that was much more oriented toward the mystical elements the mystical dimension of religion. And he had this concept called the numinous. I don't know if you guys have heard the concept or the word the numinous or the Newman. This all goes back to Rudolf Otto. That's why I want to introduce these things at a scholastic level so you guys can speak wax eloquently next time you're at a dinner party on the uh, German theologian Rudolf Otto and, and how he understood the parallel reality to our everyday Consciousness to our everyday happenings that he called the numinous, the transcendent, the divine, and when we encounter the numinous, we have what's called the mysterium tremendum, and a tremendous, almost frightful, all-filling experience with the divine. And so he categorized and and I have this book. uh, I read this during my undergraduate. If I don't know if you guys would be interested in this, I do recommend it. It's a great reading. Introducing Religion, Readings from the Classic Theorists. And so in this book, you can basically learn how some of the great theorists have defined religion. Okay, This includes people like E.B. Tyler, James Fraser, Sigmund Freud, Emil Durkheim, Karl Marx, William James, Rudolf Otto, Max Weber, Mircea Eliade, E.E. Evans-Pritchard, and Clifford Geertz, all of which incredibly important scholars in the field of religious studies. This is a great book. If you're interested, like, dang, Patrick, I got a job. I got a life. I don't have time to sit and read, um, you know, all these thick books on these classical theorists that I'm not totally interested in, but they have some useful ideas. Don't. Just get this book, Introducing Religion, and um, it's great. So here on the section of Rudolf Otto, Rudolf Otto, he has this concept of the numinous. Now, I wish I could just read part of this book to you guys, uh, but we're not going to. we got a lot of ranting and raving that we're going to get into today. But he talks about the numen, the numinous, again, transcending the categories of rationality. We're going to see that this is going to play an important part in many people's understanding of mysticism, that somehow mysticism is is really a sort of transcending of the cognitive rational categories. And it's something that we know to exist, but it's outside describability. And you can see how, as we will get into, that's going to relate to St. Dionysius and his apophatic theology, right? We have a mystical theology in the Eastern Church because we are apophatic, as opposed to where the scholastic tradition typically went with the cataphatism or even previous to Thomas Aquinas, where he had the Via Negativa. He got, again, very much a student of St. Dionysius. He actually went in that negative apophatic direction as well. But I'm digressing. This this uh, Mysterium Tremendum you see right here. Uh, let me see. Can you guys read that? Mysterium Tremendum. Uh, Rudolf Otto talks about how when you—I'll say it right here— If we do so shall find we are dealing with something which there is only one appropriate expression, mysterium tremendum. The feeling of it may at times come sweeping like a gentle tide, providing the mind with a tranquil mood of deepest worship. It may pass over into a more set and lasting attitude of the soul, continuing as it were thrillingly vibrant, resonant until at last it dies away and the soul resumes its profane, non-religious mood of everyday experience. Now, He talks about the encounter with the Mysterium Tremendum includes one, an an element of awfulness, meaning all. Not awful like terrible, but all-fullness, like you're full of all. And I think for most of us, if we've had any sort of mystical experience, we would probably describe it as an, an encounter with all. Something that really brings out this inspiration and aspiration for something that transcends. Um. I know that one of the things again getting into today's topic is what people have mystical experiences with isn't always the same thing. Does if we recognize that all these different world religions have mystical dimensions, mystical experiences, mystical practices, does that mean if we root mysticism in a more Protestant or I mean a more pragmatic or in a more phenomenological experiential way, does that mean That all these different world religions, at some mystical reality, they are all experiencing the same truth or the same God? No, not necessarily. And I think that's, as scholars, we need to be very nuanced in this discussion on mysticism. We can't get, and we're going to talk about, really a debate within scholarship between the perennialist and the contextualist, that even within fellow academics that are studying the topic of mysticism, Throughout, I would say, the end of the 18th century, uh, moving into the 19th century, into the 20th century, what became most popular was perennialism, this idea that all mysticism was definitionally categorized as privatized. And so uh, the mystical experience that Meister Eckhart has and the mystical experience as Rumi and the mystical experience of Lao Tzu and the mystical experience of... D.T. Suzuki, the mystical experience of Guru X, Y, uh, Z, Sadhu, Rishi, Roshi, whoever. Uh, well, it's all the same thing. It's all just this privatized experience, and it all relates. They're different approaches to ultimate truth. This is the perennialist take on mysticism. Um, this has actually fallen out of favor in most schol- uh, scholastic circles. So within academia, even though if you really push some of these scholars, I would say that's probably what they believe. Academically and theoretically speaking, in the way these things are studied, uh, most people do not advocate for the perennialist approach to mysticism anymore. They advocate for the contextual approach, which means we can recognize that somehow mysticism has a subjective, relativistic, personal, privatized dimension to it, but also the history they're in, the time period, the culture, the language, the government, all these different things actually are important in that some one person's mystical experience isn't the same thing as somebody else's mystical experience, and the idea that they all lead to the same truth isn't necessarily given either. So that, these are the types of con- conversations that we're going to get into today. is the, the nuts and bolts, the scholastic, the academic, the thought-provoking approach to this stuff. Uh, so... So, in regards to the Mysterium Tremendum, sorry, I'm losing my thread here. I'm all over the place already. Rudolf Otto, the, again, this very important German scholar that we're going to read more about or discuss more about here in a few, he talked about the Mysterium Tremendum. Again, this is the mystery. This is the mysticism. He argues, as we'll see in the definitions of religion, that religion, all religion, is blossoms out and originates from the Mysterium Tremendum, a mystical experience with the numinous. This is what Rudolf Otto argues. And I would say, probably to some degree, that's accurate, right? If you just had to theorize, generally speaking, just sitting there right now, what is why or what is the source for all these different world religions and mythology, I would say to some degree the people had privatized personal mystical experiences, and they began to describe those in the ways that they could. Um Again, were all those experiences, the Holy Trinity, the one living God, the, uh, the living God of the Orthodox Church? I would say no. No. That mystical experiences, pre the idea that we can encounter um, entities that aren't necessarily beneficent for us, this is all within the domain of mysticism. But one of the things that are characteristic, according to Rudolf Otto, is one, when you have a mystical experience, you have a feeling of awe. Two, when you have a experience of mysticism, you have an element of overpoweringness. So you recognize something that can overpower you. Typically speaking, when you have a mystical encounter, and then the third one is usually energy. You're filled with energy. That when you have a mystical experience, you don't. You're not left depleted. Uh, you're not left tired. Usually, there's an element of energy, or there's a sense of urgency within your own life, within something. That somehow it, it, there's, a, there's a sort of filling of energy. So again, if you want to, this is a great, great book. It's, it's such a time saver. Daniel Powell's Introducing Religion, Readings from the Classic Theorists. If this is something, if you'd like to hit on all these different theorists and, and hear what, what their takes are on religion, you can do so right there. And, you know, one of the things that we're going to be getting into today is like, what is religion at all? So here, let me let me move this over here like that. I'll bring this down for, for the sake. So here's a few definitions of religion, right? Just so you guys can get a handle on the scholastic approach to the study of religion. Before we can study mysticism, we probably need a, a good idea of what exactly religion itself is. And so here's just a quick summary of a few different approaches to religion. So you have E.B. Tyler, a uh, important um, scholar from the latter half of the 19th century says it seems best simply to claim as a minimum definition of religion, the belief in spiritual beings. So according to one of the earliest theorists uh, in religious studies, scholars of religion, he says, well, if you're going to define religion, maybe the most simplest way is the belief in spiritual beings. Um, I think it's a little bit more than that. I would say it's a little bit more than that. James Fraser, James George Fraser, again, if you guys know who he is as a very important scholar, religion began in early attempts by humans to influence nature. Religion is an intermediate stage of development between magic and science. And I've talked to you guys about this before, how the late 19th century scholars, a lot of them were interested in this debate between magic evolves into religion and religion evolves into science. And science is essentially the, uh, the fulfillment of man's rationality that was promised to us by the Enlightenment. And I, a lot of these scholars would have promoted that. But the two scholars I'm going to be focusing on today in our context, and in our conversation, is one William James and Rudolf Otto. And so the next definition comes to us from William James, and I assume many of you may like this one a little bit better. And so the definition of religion from William James... Reads, religion means the feelings, acts, and experiences of individual men in their solitude so far as they apprehend themselves to stand in relation to whatever they may consider the divine. The belief that there is an unseen order and that our supreme good lies in harmoniously adjusting ourselves thereto. Well that seems that seems like something we could somewhat agree with. William James, though in regard to these various scholars defining religion, he's considered to be more of a what what we would call a personal religion. So there's no such there's no, and if we read William James's definition, there's no dogmas, there's no doctrines, there's no rituals, there's no community. Can you have religion without all those things? Many scholars would say no. And so William James represents an extreme form of defining religion, is basically just whatever you feel is religious or divine and, and your relationship to it. And he came to this conclusion. Uh, again, this is a very important book by William James. Do you guys know who William James is? I mean, very important scholar. The Varieties of Religious Experience. This is a very important book by uh, William, Sir, William James. Who is William James? William James. William James, if you don't know, is a very important guy, guys. William James is a psychologist. He's one of the founding members of the School of Pragmatism. He's an American scholar that actually the French, the Germans, uh, they respect. So if you get into academia, especially within philosophy, um, you know, the, the, the Europeans like to definitely chastise they like to definitely chastise the, uh, the Americans as not producing great scholars. Well, William James is one of the scholars that the Europeans rightfully love and recognize. And so William James is a prominent name uh, within academia, especially as an American and he, as I said, was a founding member with Charles Sander Peirce in the School of Pragmatism. Don't know if you guys ever heard of that, but you should. It's it's a good one. Uh so that la- that later gets picked up by John Dewey. Again, not getting into that whole conversation of pragmatism, but William James has experimenting with nitrous oxide. So he was uh he was Dealing with bouts of depression, he comes from an extremely wealthy family. Who was William James's uh, brother? He's the novelist. Uh, uh, dang it! Who is? It? I gotta look it up now. Somebody tell me in the chat who William James's brother was. He's a famous novelist. Uh, um, uh, William. I gotta look it up now. William James's brother. It's gonna bother me. Uh. Henry James. Gosh, dang, the famous author Henry James, of course. Henry James. So So anyways, William James was experimenting with nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide, this is in the early 20th century and or could be the late uh 19th century as well. I'm not exactly positive, but he had these mystical experiences why Uh, getting high essentially on nitrous oxide, and that's when he decided to write this book, because he was an atheist, The Varieties of Religious Experience, and look into what he would call the psychology of religious experience. And this is actually the first time, especially in English, the phrase religious experience becomes popularized now we say it all the time oh did you have a religious oh i you know that church was beautiful or whatever religious experience is an extremely popular thing that we say now we can point to william james and so we can point also to the growth in the concept of mysticism and we're going to talk about the term mysticism as it moved through history but Anyways, I'm rambling. Uh, so that was, that's William James. And then we have uh, Schleiermacher. His definition is religion is the senses and taste of the infinite. Schleiermacher, religion is the sense and taste for the infinite. Well, it seems poetic, but I don't know exactly how, uh, how useful that is. He also says religion is a feeling of total dependence upon a source or power that is distinct from the world. Okay, that's not, not, not too bad, not too bad. Then we have Mircea Eliade's definition. It is unfortunate that we do not have our dis- at our disposal a more precise term than religion to denote the experience of the sacred. Okay, that's true. But this is the one that we're going to be focusing on today, Rudolf Otto. And he says, religions emerge from a mysterious encounter with the sacred. The sacred is mysterium tremendum. A mystery that causes trembling and fascination. A mystery that causes trembling and fascination. And so he has what's called, considered the mystical definition of religion. That is why I titled the stream the Mysterium Tremendum or Mysterium Tremendum because we're going to dive into his concept of the numinous and what is the Mysterium Tremendum and this this more mystical definition of religion. Now, after Rudolf Otto, just to finish out this list real quickly, we have Emile Durkheim, the French father of sociology. So we're going to see an incredibly sociologically defined definition of religion here. Religion is a system of ideas which individuals represent to themselves, the society of which they are members, and the obscure but intimate relations which they have with it. So he's a sociologist. You can see the communal focus, as opposed to William James's, which was a individualistic phenomenological focus, right? So we can see the polar opposites between Emil Durkheim and William James. Emil Durkheim says a religion is a unified system of beliefs and practices relative to sacred things. That is to say things are set apart and forbidden beliefs and practices, which unite into one single moral community called a church. All those who adhere to them. Sigmund Freud, of course said religion would thus be a universal obsessional neurosis of humanity, like the obsessional neurosis of children. It arouses out of the,
0: More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Oedipus Complex. Out of the relation to the father. Yes, yes. So, of course, Freud, who... It was uh, wrapped up in a lot of degenerate things that he liked to project onto his patients and the rest of the world, uh, sees religion as a neurosis. I'm sure Karl Marx wouldn't have anything to agree with that. And then we have Clifford Geertz. Uh, he, ha- he offers what's usually called a semiotic definition of religion, a semiotic definition of religion. So Clifford Geertz, scholar Clifford Clifford Geertz, says religion is one, a system of symbols which acts to establish powerful and pervasive and long-lasting moods and motivations in men by formulating conceptions of a general order of existence and for clothing these conceptions with such an aura of factuality that the moods and motivations seem uniquely realistic. I would say the semiotic definition of Clifford Geertz is probably the best one, generally speaking. Um, then you have Jesse Ventura. Religion is a sham and a crutch for weak-minded people who need strength in numbers. Uh, yes, Jesse Ventura. Yeah, that's it. And then we don't need to go through these. Uh, of course, Karl Marx says religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. Yes, the opium of the people. So that's just a few definitions, and you can see we're going to be getting into the scholastic approach to this topic today. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, really insightful, very interesting, and I'm glad that you're all here with us. So please smash that like if you guys could. We're going to do a little bit of housekeeping real quick. And the first thing that I want to say is this stream is a first half, the second half of this stream of which I go through and discuss for an hour Various mystical traditions and practices in other world religions, talking about yoga and Sufism, Kabbalah, uh, Orthodoxy, Christianity, this type of stuff. That is going to be up over at the website probably by the time this stream is over for anybody who's a website member. So please, guys, if you appreciate what we're doing, what I'm doing here on Church of the Eternal Logos, and you would be interested in helping, uh, you'd be interested in aiding... Supporting in one way or another, please become a website member. And you can do so with this link right here. Become a website member, and you can uh, have access to an entire video library, of which is the second half of this stream right here. So please do that if you would be interested. I would greatly appreciate it. Also, if anybody would be interested in setting up a one-on-one session for this Thursday or the following Thursday, whichever you're available, you can do so with this link right here. Please uh, click that, sign up, purchase in half an hour, hour. I'm very generous with my time, so it's not like we just get cut off right there. If you'd like to talk about theology, religion, philosophy, world, you know, magic, uh, life, fitness, whatever it is, uh, you can do so. By scheduling a one-on-one, this is another great way to try to support Church of the Eternal Logos. Also, you could go to the shop and purchase a hat or a t-shirt. Would greatly appreciate anybody purchasing some of the merchandise. And, um, and of course, tomorrow night we'll be back with our theology course. So if you'd like to join Subdeacon Mark, my godfather, and myself, and... Many of the brothers and sisters in this chat, we, are, we do a theology course every Wednesday night at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time up till 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's totally free. Uh, anybody can join. All you have to do is follow my telegram. If you follow my telegram, you will be getting the Zoom link right before the meeting starts. Again, that is every Wednesday night, so you can join tomorrow night, of which we will be... Um, we will be diving back into our theology class. So, okay. Now, let's get into today's topic. So, the first thing that I want to talk to you guys about is the history of the term mysticism. Mysticism. And so, mysticism actually derives from the Greek word muo, M U O. And it means to I conceal. In, in 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 the first person, I conceal, and so we've talked about how mysticism in the ancient Greek, uh, really all the way up to early Christianity, had a definition and an understanding that had to relate to initiations into secret rites, uh, secret traditions, things that most people were excluded from, and so mysticism—that's what is meant by mystery religions. So whenever you see that term talking about the ancient period and they are talking about a mystery religions or uh, the mysteries of Mithras, the mysteries of Zoroaster. What they're talking about are traditions that would have a series of initiation processes for people to attain secret knowledge or to become part of a group. This was considered mysticism. And so Mostikos, mostikos is actually an initiate Mostikos is an initiate within the Greek. Muo, to induct, which is still used, this is still used in common Greek vernacular. It means to induct, initiate, introduce, familiarize, and so forth. So you can see it has to do with something with a greeting of, 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 of some initiation process, right? In the Hellenistic world, mystical means secret an initiate in some sort of mystery religion, i.e. the Alicinian mysteries. And so I've talked about on this channel multiple times, the Alicinian mysteries as they relate to um, R. Gordon Wasson, Albert Hoffman, the inventor of LSD, um, Carl A.P. Ruck, and his... Book that's arguing that the Alicinian Mysteries was really the last basis of a psychedelic mystery religion dating out of the ancient period. So they argue that the Alicinian Mystery was where the people would drink the Kekekion, and they believed it was an ergotized brew which had LSD-like alkaloids. The ergot, they argued, was LSD-like alkaloids. And so the Alicinian Mystery, the reason why it was an Alicinian Mystery is that you would have to be given the brew, you'd have to be accepted, and then you would be initiated into the whole process, um, and um, and so, mysterion in classical Greek means a hidden thing, a hidden thing, okay. And this is how this is the original etymology of the of where we would get the root words for mysticism. Now, interestingly, muo begins to change meaning as it gets into early Christianity and some of the church fathers and all this different stuff. Uh, so, for the New Testament, m u e o, meant a actually a shutting of one's eyes and mouth to experience the mystery. So in early Christianity, they used a very similar word that's still used today to mean to initiate, to familiarize, all this different stuff. But in early Christianity, it meant you to shut your eyes and shut your mouth, which is probably true for a lot of us. To experience the mystery of God, we have to shut up once in a while. And so this is where the the term, the etymology began to sort of make and move into a new direction with early Christianity. And so mysticos referred to three dimensions within the Christian context. And this was the Bible, the liturgy, and the contemplative or the theoria, the practices to um, encounter God, right? Again, we would call this hesychia. So this is the silent prayers. This is the contemplative practices. This is the fasting. This is the ascetic ways. This is the tradition that St. Simeon really got going, right? And so mysticism in the early Christian context begins to take on a new understanding that actually relates to a shutting of one's eyes and mouth, but also this this tripartite understanding of the Bible as mysterious or mystical, the liturgy as mysterious or mystical, and the contemplative practices as mystery or mystical. Now, you're going to see as we get into some of these other definitions of mysticism that it makes sense. Why, the, why would the Bible be mystical? How would that, you know, again, I thought when we talk about mysticism, we're talking about, you know, taking a strip of acid and going out in nature. I thought that's what mysticism was. Well, it depends on how you define it. And we're going to see other people have defined it based on um, understandings of ultimate truths, understandings of God at a deeper level. Um that it's it's that it can be an encounter. And so if we understand scripture to be uh revelational works through the fallibility of human beings, but a revelational work of God, then we can see how the scripture itself is a sort of encounter with God. And as you and I read scripture, in a way we are encountering God. That ha- that does certainly have a mystical element to it. Now, another way in which our you know, Christianity has a mystical element, is the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. If mysticism is a union with the divine, if mysticism is an encounter with that which transcends, well, what is the Eucharist? What is that whole process? Again, and and as Orthodox, we don't have rationalistic definitions like transubstantiation. We have what we would consult, we, we would say it's a mystery. And this is part of, Another element of why orthodoxy is often considered the more mystical form of Christianity is we don't have these rationalistic definitions because another descriptor of mysticism is that it transcends rationality. This is why we focus so much on apophatic theology. Apophatic, the negative, what God isn't. Cataphatic, what God is. The problem is when we say what God is, we're actually putting a descriptor to, in one way, his essence if, if we're doing essentialist claims. This is where Western Christianity goes after schism. Orthodoxy maintains this apophatic, God is beyond description. God is beyond conceptualization. God is beyond space and time. These are apophatic claims that, again, don't, dis- don't take a concept and attach it to the essence of God. So, in a way, that's also mystical, right? because we, we we talk about how God transcends the category of rationality itself. but it's mystical in the sense that Christ's presence is there in the Eucharist. That is mystical as well. That is a full union, right? you want to talk about the union with divinity, well, what could be more unifying other than if God's present is in this process, which we call down the Holy Spirit through a mystery. Bread, leavened bread, red wine becomes the body and blood, and we call it a bloodless sacrifice, but at the same time, we call it the real blood. What is going on? And we say, this is a mystery. This is a mystery. And and often, when you look at scholastic approaches to mysticism, you'll see that mystical things tend to have a paradoxical framework, that often mysticism is relating, and it, 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 it becomes a paradox. And we see these paradoxes all the time in Orthodoxy, and we could point to those and say, look, that's another, that's another attribute of, of the mystical dimension of our religion. But the sacraments, these are also mystical, the sacraments. And you see when the Greek words for mysticism get translated into the Vulgate, so the Latin text, the Latin Bible, they actually translate mysticism or, or, uh, as sacrament. And so we talk about a sacramental reality and these types of things. And then we have mystical practices, right? I didn't describe any practices. Now, if somebody says, you know what, Father, can you give me some mystical practices so I can attain a mystical understanding? Well, now you're getting into hesychasm, and that would be how we would understand, okay, now here's some mystical practices for you to do to um, to gain insight. So mysticism has related to hidden meanings of scripture, Christ's presence in the Eucharist, the sacraments of the church, and silent contemplative practices, theoria, theoria. Now, St. Dionysius, as I said, um, and of course, there's a controversial uh, understanding of is it, you know, St. Dionysius in regards to, if you look online, everything's going to say Pseudo-Dionysius. Pseudo-Dionysius, the Areopagite. What is, for again, just to fill you guys in, what exactly is Gackley's going on that I'm calling him St. Dionysius? And if you look at any online source, I mean, you look at this book right here of him, right? This is his book. It says Pseudo-Dionysius. Pseudo-Dionysius. Well, this is um, due to a controversy regarding the dating of his works. Some people date his works to the 6th century. And therefore, due to his apophatic description and some of the things that he says and the way that he says it, people argue that he was very much influenced by Plotinus, the father of Neoplatonism, and his student Proclus, the student of Plotinus, the founder of Neoplatonism. And so they claim that Dionysius was influenced by the Neoplatonists, and this is why... Step into the world
2: of power
0: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for
1: details. He has the sort of the mystical theology and all this different stuff. Now, that's why they call him Pseudo-Dionysius, because Dionysius is tied to the Dionysius in the book of Acts, who Paul... Converts when he's talking to the Greeks in regards to the unknown God. Right? And so the unknown God, think about this the unknown God, when Paul tries to talk to the Greeks and explain who the unknown God is, he converts a woman and he converts one of the Areopagite. And that was Dionysius the Areopagite. According to our church tradition, he is a saint and he wrote these things, and it's not some sixth century uh, pseudo. Um, So just wanted to throw that out there for you guys if you didn't know. But anyways, his apophatic theology, as I said, God going beyond rational categories. This is mystical. God can't be confined in rational categories. That is mystical. This is part of the the mystical understanding of, of the Eastern Church specifically. And this exerted a great influence upon medieval mystics. And so you'll see with the via negativa of Thomas Aquinas, scholasticism. That gets going in the West. Then they get the Vienna. I think uh, I forget. I think it's over a thousand citations Thomas Aquinas has in the Summa to Saint Dionysius. So tons. He was obsessed with Saint Dionysius. Now, obviously, um, very well. That, that's another topic. Um, so through Thomas Aquinas, but also from the original works, St. Dionysius had an incredible influence upon medieval mystics, Catholic Western mystics. Now, one of the things that also changed in the West compared to the East in regards to mysticism is how they began to understand the role of the imagination and the senses and the emotions. So obviously scholasticism as a project of understanding is getting more and more naturalistic. It's more it's getting less and less theological, more and more philosophical, right? And it's more about natural theology eventually, uh, more about uh, naturalistic approaches. And it becomes so you look at like some of the teachings of Ignatius of Loyola, he is telling people to really focus on your emotions, really get into an emotionally ecstatic state. When you pray, come up with very vivid mental images, do all this stuff. Now, Eastern Orthodoxy would say, be very careful about that because you can get swept away. So when we look at some of the mystical writings of the Western, uh, mystics, you'll see extremely erotic descriptions of their relationship to Christ. Extremely erotic. Um, you're not going to see that in the East. And so the cataphatic God is love, God is unity. You know, this really gets going in the West. And this ties back to the ancient world. And, and one of the reasons you have to be so careful with the unity thing, and I've mentioned this before, that if God is absolute unity and you put this as, a, uh, as an absolute emphasis in your worldview, well, God can never not be unity. And this is one of the big problems of these these worldviews that that still have the sort of Neoplatonic holdovers, is that um, if God is ultimate unity and God has to be oneness, absolute oneness, conscious oneness, the divine mind, all this different stuff. Well, then you can say, well, if God is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omnipowerful, why can't He be more than one? And you see that, that. well, Why can't it? Well, they're privileging the you know they're privileging the concept of oneness overall. But our God can. Our God became human. Our God is three persons, one essence. Our God is all these different things that if somebody's just focusing on unity, they can't have. And those are from cataphatic descriptions. So we see in our mystical theology one that goes beyond dialectical categories and so forth. So Theoria, I wanted to read... Um, I wanted to read something to you guys real quick. There's a good little uh, description of orthodoxy on. um, There we go on this one right here. Here we go. So let me move this over there. Okay. so let me read this to you guys real quick. This is on. Uh, so this is just the uh, fallacious Wikipedia page. So you always got to be careful what's on Wikipedia. But it's so useful than just finding like a large sum paragraphs within larger works. So this is on Orthodox Christianity. This is us talking a little bit about what theoria is. What is mysticism within a uh, Orthodox context? And I'm going to spend a, I want to do another lecture diving much deeper into this. And the Orthodox Church has a long tradition of theoria, intimate experience, and hezekiah, inner stillness, in which contemplative prayer silences the mind to progress along the path of theosis, deification. Theosis, practical unity with the conformity to God, is obtained by engaging in contemplative prayer, the first stage of theoria, which results from from the cultivation of watchfulness, nepsis, in Theoria, one comes to behold the divisibly indivisible divine operations, the Gaia of God as the uncreated light of transfiguration, a grace which is eternal and proceeds naturally from the blinding darkness of the incomprehensible divine essence. Incomprehensible divine essence. It is the main aim of hesychasm which was developed in the thought of St. Simeon, the new theologian, embraced by his monastic communities on Mount Athos and most notably defended by St. Gregory Palamas against the Greek humanist philosopher Barlaam of Calabria. According to Roman Catholic critics, hesychastic practices has its roots in the introduction of a systematic practical approach to quietism by Simeon, the new theologian. Simeon believed that direct experience gave monks the authority to preach and give absolution of sins without the need for formal ordination, while church authorities also taught from a speculative philosophical perspective. Simeon taught from his own direct mystical experience and met with strong resistance of his charismatic approach and his support for individual direct experience of God's grace. Okay. So the 13th century then rolls around, And we get this term called unio mystica. And this is where these Western mystics go a little bit further into their sort of sexual erotic relationships with the transcendent and all this different stuff. The spiritual marriage is what they called it. This eventually leads to the early modern period. Okay, the early modern period of this term then talks about mysticism as taking on a new meaning. And at that time, so you can think about, so again, early modernism, modernism usually dates to around the Renaissance. So often late 1300s, earlier 1400s, what we can consider the early modern period. And modernism then creates a sort of presuppositional basis. And Father Deacon, Dr. Ananias speaks very eloquently on this topic about how our scientism is built on a lot of modernist presuppositions that... People just aren't aware of, but taking a new meaning between science and religion, mysticism starts to grow. Now, remember, in the Protestant Reformation, they begin to stamp out many mystical elements of Christianity, and you see all the magical hermeticism alchemy begin to rise in Europe. Mysticism as a term begins to grow in popularity during the modern period, and obviously magic and theurgy does as well. Luther actually condemns mystical theology. So Martin Luther, the founder of Lutheranism, saw it as more platonic than Christian. And you have to understand that he's coming out of the Western tradition. He's coming at it from a perspective um, that is presupposing much of the differences between Orthodoxy and Catholicism. So you can see why he would be a little bit... Uh, have a little bit of an angst against the mystical theology. Again, he says it was more platonic. And he disregards the idea of hidden meaning of text, hidden meaning within the text. Now, this is really interesting because within an orthodox framework in our theology of the noose, the noose actually shields the meaning of text itself. According to our orthodox theology, you can only know from Scripture that which you are able to glean from it. So as cleansed as your noose is, as righteous as you are as a person, that's the depth in which when you read Scripture you can see. So interestingly, in our sort of orthodox worldview, um, the depth of Scripture is shrouded by your own piety and righteousness and understanding. Um, But anyways, Martin Luther rejects hidden mystical meanings of text, and by the 17th century, mysticism becomes applied exclusively to the religious realm, the religious realm. And so you see how religion becomes antagonistic to what they would call natural philosophy, natural philosophy, just observing nature, observing, observing the world, and coming up with larger conceptions, philosophical systems from there. That's natural philosophy. 17th century, religion is pitted against it. And so the contemporary, this leads us to the contemporary meaning of the term mysticism. What does it mean now? Well, it really just means a growing individual experience as a defense against rationalism. Now there is no specific understanding of mystical. It can be anything. And even there's a sort of secularization of mysticism itself. People talk about doing mystical practices like transcendental meditation for health. Well, that's totally secular. That's divorced from any theology, that's divorced from any transcendency, that's divorced from any transformation of the person. I mean, I guess they can in a in a pragmatic way. But we see the term change over time to it's now contemporary period, where it just means an individual experience, and it's really has become an umbrella term for all sorts of non-rational practices. So anything that again defines rational categories is given the, the label mystical or mysticism nowadays. And as I said, there's a there's a split within the academic study of mysticism between the perennialists who see all mystical encounters around world history as basically different uh, different approaches experiences with this objective reality, this this dialectical objective reality. We're in the profane. Sometimes we buttress up against. The sacred and we have the experience of the numinous we encounter the mysterium tremendum and so that's the perennialist versus the contextual so unitarianism transcendentalist theosophy they all promote the perennial understanding and so now i want to get into definitions and scholastic approaches so there is no single definition for mysticism there is no single definition for mysticism and so uh, the one that I would say most people, if you had to describe what mysticism is, most people would say it's union with the divine, by far the most popular among scholars, amongst lay people. Again, if we just did a poll in this live chat, I guarantee you the majority of people, if asked to describe mysticism, would say, um, would say that it's just the union with the divine. Well, that comes from Neoplatonism. And it comes from a concept called henosis. Let me actually pull this up real quick. Uh, so, bam, let me pull this up and go to Wikipedia. So, there's a term called henosis. Now, again, we believe in theosis, but there's a term called henosis. And that's what I'm showing you right now. Henosis is the classical Greek word for mystical oneness, union, or unity. And Platonism, especially Neoplatonism, the goal of henosis is union with what is fundamental in reality, the one, the source, the monad, the divine mind of Hermeticism. The developed, the Neoplatonic concept has precedence in the Greek mystery religions. Okay, so now we're seeing a a continual thread here, right? We're seeing the, the evolution of the concept of mystery or mysticism, as well as parallels in Eastern philosophy. It is further developed in the Corpus Hermeticum, Christian theology, Elevism, soteriology, mysticism, okay, yada, yada, yada. So uh, the process of unification, henosis, and henosis is actually developed by Plotinus. Plotinus, again, the father of Neoplatonism, the father of Neoplatonism. So the idea, the general idea that mysticism means union with the divine, we can point to that and say, you know what? That idea actually comes from the Platonic understandings of henosis. Union with oneness. And this has taken on a really strong character. Now, it comes from Neoplatonism and unity with a fundamental reality. Henosis has presence, as I said, in the Greek mystery traditions. And the culmination, according to these Platonists and the Neoplatonists, the culmination of henosis is deification. Is deification. Now, if you ask the Neoplatonists, how exactly do you become one?
0: Anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now
1: at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary,
0: DW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18
1: plus. And I guarantee you, they would have practices of inebriation, say psychedelics in the ancient world, uh, various drug plants, drug species, theurgy. Theurgy is is another very common mystical way for oneness. One of the things that you'll notice if you actually do a comparative study of mysticism is almost all these forms of mysticism are about losing your specificity into the universality of the one, of God, of the source, of the monad, of the divine mind, all this different stuff, where our theosis, comparing this to henosis, our theosis of Eastern Orthodox theology, the original Christian theology, is the maintaining of your specificity as David Patrick Harry. And if I do rightfully what I need to, by the grace of God, I'll become, be filled with his energies and slowly become what God is by nature. I will be by grace. This is how we attain theosis. How do you attain? So this is our unification, our unification with the divine, right? This definitional understanding of mysticism. Our unification comes from theosis. Well, and it can come, we can have mystical encounters in different ways, as I talked about. But henosis is this Platonized term. <clears throat> okay, and so eventually, uh well, let me type this. How many of you guys know what this word means? You should. This is a very important term, theurgy. If you're not familiar with this term, you should add it to your lexicon. So when, again, you're at a nice dinner party, uh, you'll be able to wax eloquently on various magical practices uh, of ritualists ritualists to unify the uh, microcosm and the macrocosm. So theurgy. Theurgia. Theurgy describes the practice of rituals sometimes seen as magical in nature performed with the intention of invoking the action or evoking the presence of one or more deities, especially with the goal of achieving henosis, uniting the divine and perfecting oneself. Do you see that? So theurgy, a form of magic, is often the basis and the mechanism that the pagan world, we would say, unifies themselves with the divine. Okay, unifies themselves with the divine. Now, eventually this concept, as I said, the union mystica, the spiritual marriage gets going um, in the 13th century. So that is a continuation of the definition of mysticism being the unification with the divine. And then you later get in the 19th century religious experiences. So you get William James in the 19th century. Then his definition of mysticism, his definition of religion is consistent with this ancient understanding coming out of Neoplatonism. It's consistent with this concept of henosis. Okay. And so actually now I want to show you uh, something real quick. So this is William James. Again, William James, the very important American scholar, And he defined mysticism, we already talked about his definition of religion, right? So um, it says James investigated mystical experiences throughout his life, leading him to experiment with uh, chlorohydrate, amyl nitrate, nitrous oxide, and peyote. James claimed that it was only when he was under the influence of nitrous oxide that he was able to understand Hegel. He concluded that while the revelations of the mystic hold true— they hold true only for the mystic, so that's why again his definition was so individualistic, solipsistic, all these different things. They own they are certain ideas to be considered, but can only but can hold no claim to truth without personal experience of such. American philosophy and encyclopedia classes him as one of several figures who, quote, took a more pantheist or pandeist approach by rejecting views of God as separate from the world. And so regarding mysticism, William James said, William James provided a description of the mystical experience in his famous collection of lectures published in 1902, The Varieties of Religious Experience. These criteria are as follows. Passa- passivity, a feeling of being grasped or held by a superior power not under your own control. Ineffability, no adequate way to use human language to describe the experience. Noetic, universal truths related to an un that are unable to be acquired anywhere else. Transient, the mystical experience is only a temporary experience. And James' preferences was to focus on human experience, leading to his research of the subconscious. This was the entryway for the awakening transformation of mystical states. Mystical states represent the peak of religious experience. This helped open James's inner process of self-discovery. So one of the things that I also wanted to mention is that these, these um, mystical traditions... Dramatically warn against becoming addicted to mystical experiences, and I think this is probably what happened with myself. I would have, I would venture to say with many people who get caught up in the psychedelic spirituality, the psychedelic worldview, is you get addicted, you get an attachment. To mystical encounters, mystical experiences. Now, the only way you can access God, the only way you can access Gnosis, the only way you can access truer insight is through higher forms of mystical experiences, which means more drugs, more psychedelics, more magic, whatever it be. And you see this even with William James himself. That's basically where he went. And so many mystical traditions Warn, whether it be Sufism, whether it be hesychasm, whether it be yoga, they warn practitioners or mystics to not become attached to mystical experiences. The goal isn't necessarily about mystical experiences. The goal, at least from a Christian context, is to be transformed as a person by the experience. Let me say that again. These mystical traditions warn mystics to not become addicted to mystical experiences, but to focus on, if they have one, to be transformed by it to be more like God. Now, that's henosis. and both these traditions, that's theosis, if you're orthodox. And so general methods, many traditions advocate um, what are some ways in which people can have mystical encounters. Now, this is what, again, if you guys have just joined, please smash that like. But if you'd like the second half of this stream where I talk about mystical practices and other world religions, that is up at the website for members only. So please use the link, go to the website, and register as a member for that. But some of the things you can do for mystical insight. Now, of course, the Indians, they're into all types of yoga. Jhana yoga, knowledge yoga, Hatha yoga, Raja yoga. All these different types of yoga. Yoga can be a form of mystical experience, right? Of which you're basically aligning your Atman, this is a Sanskrit term for soul, with the ultimate or fundamental reality Brahman. Okay? Interestingly enough, again, mysticism is even understood differently within Hinduism. So within a Hindu context... You could be in the Vedanta school or the Advaita Vedanta school and have a totally different understanding of what mysticism or what even the yoga is doing, right? Because you have Rishis, uh, Roshis, they smoke, smoke hemp all day, right? This is, this is their spiritual practice. They may do yoga, but they're also been smoking hemp nonstop and they're probably eating it, smoking it, doing all this type of stuff. Fasting, they may be emaciated in certain ways. So In Hinduism, for example, to use this as a case study, you can look at, okay, Hinduism believes in a soul. They call that soul the Atman. They believe that soul is a piece of the ultimate reality, which they call Brahman. In the Advaita Vedanta tradition, which believes in absolute unity, no distinction, no duality, absolute unity, they would say your Atman and your Brahman are already one in the same thing. That really, these mystical practices are trying to, uh, um, trying to bring your awareness to the point of the illusions, the Maya, the illusions that are in your mind that there is a separation. The realize that the realization then through these mystical practices is to realize that there is no separation between the Atman and the Brahman. Now, in a different context, you could go to a Vedanta school, which actually believes in a separation of the Atman in the Brahman in which the yoga is a way for you to slowly bring your Atman closer and closer to Brahman. And that is enlightenment. Eventually, you reach that point. That's another form, an understanding of this within yoga, uh, yoga Hindu traditions. Another one is that uh, there's a whole school that has an entirely different understanding that Atman is not the same thing as Brahman. This would be controversial in different uh, different schools. So mysticism, even within Hinduism, can be understood in a variety of different ways. But what are some general practices? Well, uh, I would say most mystical traditions, there's four areas that I I spotted. Um, Spontaneous mystical experiences encounters. I would say the majority of mystical traditions advocate for a spontaneous occurrence of these experiences. So you can go to shamanism, you can get into forms of magic. You can do all this stuff where they basically are trying to coax these experiences into, into the presence. They want to experience them right here, right now. And so um, they are basically demanding these experiences at certain times. And, and that was me uh, with psychedelics. Um, it's like I I want that, that – feeling of being altered in my mind and being in a different headspace and experiencing things in a brand new way and, and identifying every little synchronicity as I'd call it, every every single providential occurrence as the universe, as God speaking to me in these altered states, that's not a spontaneous encounter. And so most traditions advocate for a spontaneous encounter. Second are devotional practices. So, and I'm talking about generally speaking across all religions. So devotional practices are another way people can sort of coax or experience mystical encounters. So this is deep prayer. This is um, contemplation. This is meditation. This is mantras. This is yoga. And you could go on, you know, so on and so forth. What are devotional practices? Devotional practices. What are devotional ways in which people can uh try to worship again whatever it is that they are conceiving to be divine that is another way that people can have these mystical encounters Um, a third is obvious and that's psychedelics and theogens that that was me that's shamanism that's most uh that that or at least more contemporary forms of magic that's what they're doing. More contemporary forms of magic are much more interested in using substances, psychedelics, drugs. Um, that's the New Age now. Although the New Age has an ambiguous relationship, there there are many people, many gurus in the New Age who advocate against psychedelics, against substances, and and sort. So you can't be too generalistic with the New Age. Uh, but. Um, psychedelics, drugs of some sort, some taking something basically, again, it's almost like an inversion of the Eucharist that somehow I can ingest something. And by ingesting it, I can have a mystical encounter with God in a way you can see how psychedelics are a a sort of inversion of the Eucharist of the Eucharist. And the fourth one is neurophysiological. So if you look at traditions like shamanism, there's been multiple academic papers written on this that um, within shamanism, a lot of times the shamans have uh, neurological disorders. Maybe they're epileptic. Maybe they're schizophrenic. And these neurological disorders actually allow the shaman to encounter more of the spirit world, right? This is how the shaman, this is what shamanic mysticism is is that shamanic mysticism is that there's a individual known as the shaman, who's usually just one person within a tribal setting, who is, uh, has a predilection or a, a, a disposition that allows them to... 18 plus. Encounter the spirit world more readily, and so some of them use psychedelics. Some of them use ordeal traumas. So um, go do a Sundance in the baking sun inside in a desert, and don't eat for a day or two, and then see where your mind goes. Right, this is another way to have an altered experience. So shamans do their shamanizing and their shamanic practice by getting into altered states of consciousness. How they do that varies across world religions. Or rock, world shaman shamanistic practices, I should say. Um, but often, when 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 some of the scholars who have done uh, anthropological research has seen that many times the shaman has some type of neurological disorder, and so his the schizophrenia, and they in the tribal setting believes, oh well, he's a medicine man, he's a healer, he has better access to the spirits because the efficacy of a shaman is how many spirits he has under control. So um, I think that shamanism is filled with demonic activity. But in a way, you can see a sort of prefiguring of Christ in the figure of the shaman. Not that Christ is a shaman. I am not arguing that. I'm saying that a shaman, according to these tribal practices, is getting spirits under his power. Now, obviously, we as Christians can recognize the demonic influence within shamanism and some of the practices, some of the uh, societal structures within these tribes. We would say, oh, well, that's definitely an inversion. That's definitely demonic. But Christ is the ultimate source that has all spirits under his power. Right. And so for these tribes who are extremely limited and isolated, their understanding of the holy man, the shaman, was somebody who had power over other spirits, non-physical entities. Christ is exercising Beelzebub, legion, all these different things in Scripture. And in a way, then, we could see how, even within a tribal setting, reality itself prefiguring Christ, the creator of reality, in the way that they shamanize, almost prefigure the way Christ works with the demonic. And that's kind of what the shamans were trying to do, I, I you know, potentially with the demonic, something of that nature. So, so those are the four ways that um, mystical traditions usually advocate for mystical experience. It's spontaneous. Don't, you know, let it happen to you. Let God do it for you. Uh, devotional practices, deep prayer, fasting, meditation, contemplation, uh, mantras, yoga, this type of stuff. Then you have entheogens, psychedelic drugs, and then you have, neurological disorders that predispose people to have mystical experiences. So uh, so I wanted to mark all that. Um, and I wanted now to get into Rudolf Otto. okay. So remember we just talked about William James, a very important scholar and he had this personalized uh, definition of religion. And then we, he deemed uh, ineffability and indescribability as an essential mark of the mystical. Now, the one scholar in, the, in religious studies who most people would point to and say, looky right there, um, he, he uh, definitely has a mystical definition of religion. We would say that's Rudolf Otto. Rudolf Otto. And Rudolf Otto came up with this concept of the numinous. So let's look and learn a little bit about Rudolf Otto real quick in this concept of the numinous. So Rudolf Otto, uh, again, I think this stuff is very useful for anybody who wants to have a little bit more of an academic take on these things. So the numinous is the most – so this is what this guy, uh, Rudolf Otto, is known for. So this take this away. Put this in your lexicon. Put this in your back pocket. Keep it. Rudolf Otto was an influ- influential German theologian, and he derived this term from the Latin Neumann, meaning arousing spiritual religious emotion, mysterious, all-inspiring. The term was given its present sense by the German theologian and philosopher Rudolf Otto in his influential 1917 German book, The Idea of the Holy. He also used the phrase mysterium tremendum as another description of the phenomenon. Otto's concept of the numinous influenced thinkers, including Carl Jung, Mursil Eliade, C.S. Lewis, and has been applied to theology, psychology, religious studies, literary analysis, and descriptions of psychedelic experiences. And so let's go down here. I just want to read these two sections to you guys, and then we're going to get into a little bit more of an academic uh, understanding of his work. The word was given its present sense by a uh, German philosopher and theologian Rudolf Otto in his f- influential 1970 work, The Idea of the Holy. Otto writes that while the concept of the holy is often used to convey moral perfection and does entail this, it contains another distinct element beyond the ethical sphere for which the term numinous, he explains the numinous as a non-rational non-sensory experience or feeling whose primary and immediate object is outside the self. This mental state, quote, presents itself as gans andere. I don't even, that must be German. I don't even know. Holy other. Presents itself as a holy other, a condition absolutely swayed, generous and incomparable whereby the human being finds himself utterly abashed. Otto argues that because the numinous is irreducible and sway, generi, sway generous, it cannot be defined in terms of other concepts or experiences, and that the reader must therefore be, quote, guided and led on by consideration and discussion of the matter through the ways of his own mind until he reached the point at which the numinous in him preforce begins to stir. In other words, our X cannot, strictly speaking, be taught. It must be evoked, awakened in the mind. Chapters 4 to 6 are devoted to attempting to evoke the numinous and its various aspects. Um, so here is uh, a little clip of his. The feeling of it may at times come sweeping like a gentle tie. Actually, I already read that one uh, from, from my book. So let's continue on here. The later use of the concept. Otto's use of the term was referring to a characteristic of religious experience, was influential among certain intellectuals in subsequent generations. For example, numinous, as understood by Otto, was a frequently quoted concept in the writings of Carl Jung and C.S. Lewis. Lewis described the numinous experience and the problem of pain as follows. So this is a quote from C.S. Lewis, who was a fan of Rudolf Otto. Again, Rudolf Otto was a Christian, so out of many of the theorists, that you, if you go to look into religious studies, majority of the academics who have studied religion throughout the world were not religious. Um, maybe they were spiritual, if you will, but most of them weren't religious. Rudolf Otto was religious. He was religious his whole life, and he actually did Christian apologetics. Now, he was a Lutheran, so he wasn't an Orthodox, and he had probably beliefs, surely, that you and I would disagree with, but... At least he was a Christian God-fearing man who defended Christianity apologetically against many naturalistic critiques. Here is a block quote from C.S. Lewis regarding Rudolf Otto's concept of the numinous. Suppose you were told there was a tiger in the next room. You would know that you were in danger and would probably feel fear. But if you were told, quote, there is a ghost in the next room, and believed it, you would feel indeed what is often called fear, but in a different kind. It would not be based on the knowledge of danger, for no one is primarily afraid of what a ghost may do to him, but of the more mere fact that it is a ghost. It is, quote, uncanny rather than dangerous. And the special kind of fear it excites may be called dread, with the uncanny one has reached the fringes of the numinous. Now suppose that you were told simply, quote, there is a mighty spirit in the room and believed it. Your feelings would then be even less like the, f- the mere fear of danger, but the disturbance would be profound. You would feel wonder and a certain shrieking, a sense of inadequacy to cope with such a visitant and prostration before it. An emotion which might be expressed in Shakespeare's words as under it, my genius is rebuked. This feeling may be described as awe, the object which excites it as the numinous. Okay, and so I want to now get into this article. This is a really good article I found, and I can share it with you guys right here. If you would like to learn more about the work of Rudolf Otto, which I do recommend anybody uh, anybody knowing about, Let's get into it. Rudolf Otto's Idea of the Holy Summary. In the first part of this brief study of the Idea of the Holy, we summarize what we take to be Otto's two most important themes, the numinous and religious progress. And the second part we comment on, so we don't get into that, the numinous religious experience. Otto starts the Idea of the Holy by arguing that the non-rational in religion must be given its due importance, Then goes on to introduce and develop this notion of the numinous as a kind of first approximation of the holy new concept he is giving us. Otto characterizes the numinous as the holy, i.e. God, minus its moral and rational aspects. A little more positively, it is the ineffable core of religion. The experience of it cannot be described in terms of other experiences. So again, you can see why Rudolf Otto is the scholar that most academics would point to as having an academic, I'm sorry, as having a mystical definition of religion. Otto's next, uh, next approximation is the notion of creature feeling. He suggests that those who experience the numinous experience a sense of dependency on something objective and external to themselves that is greater than themselves. So terms to, again, to remember that of Rudolf Otto, the holy other, this is where he's not, I'm not talking about holy, H-O-L-L, it's W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, like totally distinct other than yourself is this realm of the numinous and it causes the mysterium tremendum, which we'll get into. The experience of the numinous in real life. The writer goes on to indicate the concrete terms, the kind of experience he is considering. Quotations are essential here, so it must be absolutely clear on what auto has in mind it is quote the deepest and most fundamental element in all strong and sincerely felt religious emotion it is to be found in strong sudden uh ebullitions of personal piety and the fixed and ordered solemnities of rites and liturgies and again in the atmosphere that clings to old religious monuments and buildings to temples and to churches and may be peaceful and, quote, come sweeping like a gentle tide, providing, pervading the mind with a tranquil mood of deepest worship, or faster moving, thrillingly and vibrant and resonant until it, at last it dies away and the soul resumes its profane, non-religious mood of everyday experience, even violent and erupting from the depths of the soul with spasms and convulsions and leading to the strangest excitement it to intoxicated frenzy, to transport, and to ecstasy. And here we go. Otto's Mysterium Tremendum. This is what I titled today's stream after. Otto has reached the heart of the matter. He pins down this sort of experience for dissection in terms of the Latin phrase, Mysterium Tremendum. He presents the tremendum component of the numinous that is being experienced as comprising three elements, Awfulness, meaning inspiring awe, a sort of profound unease, overpoweringness, that which, among other things, inspires a feeling of humility, and energy, creating an impression of immense vigor. The mysterium component in its turn has two elements, which Otto discusses at considerable length. Firstly, the numinous is experienced as, quote, holy other, right? That's what I was telling. This is an important phrase, actually, within religious studies, the holy other. Again, it goes back to Rudolf Otto. It is something truly amazing as being totally outside our normal experience. Secondly, here is the element of fascination which causes the subject of the experience of the numinous to be caught up in it, to be entrapped, I mean enraptured, I'm sorry. Some points arising. There are several important points to be made out about this description and analysis of religious experience. First of all, note Otto's passing mention of the profane. This is another. This is where we would definitely disagree as Orthodox with Rudolf Otto. Rudolf Otto has this basic conception that in reality there's the profane and there's the sacred. This is a dialectic, right? Orthodoxy is always about collapsing these dialectics, and so he maintains this dialectic to an an intense degree. So we would definitely be an objective or be an being. We would object to that claim for sure. First of all, note Otto's passing mention of the profane. In this account, the religious person operates on two levels, usually the profane of everyday life with the occasional moments of longer periods of accession to a higher or sacred level. Secondly, note the situations in which his higher level may be attained. Otto refers not only to personal piety, where he is presumably talking about prayer and religious meditation, he also includes participation in religious ceremonies and even visits to churches and the like. Thirdly, note that although Otto initially mentions participation in ceremonies and visits to holy buildings as occasions for profound religious experience, he proves in the discussion of the five elements to be concerned above all with mysticism. This is surely a matter of personal piety. Religious progress, a preview. Fourthly, and finally, note that in the course of an analysis of the Mysterium Tremendum, Otto gives us a preview of his ideas on religious progress. And the section on the first of his elements, Awfulness, the writer explains how this part of the experience of the numinous still retains something of its origins in the most primitive form of religious experience. Quote, this is from uh, uh, Rudolf Otto, let us give a little further consideration to the first crude primitive forms in which the numinous dread, or awe, shows itself. It is the mark which really characterizes the so-called, cult religion of primitive man. And there it appears as a demonic dread, this crudely naive and primordial emotion, emotional disturbance. Now, it is interesting, though, if you look at more primitive cultures, primitive societies, they're going to have shamanism. And shamanism is all about mysticism. Shamanism is not about uh, non contradictory logical claims. Shamanism is not about dogmas. Shamanism is not about text. Shamanism is not about revelation. Shamanism is about a man or a woman, a shaman, having mystical encounters with the spirit world, dominating those spirits, and therefore being able to use those spirits for healing, for divination, for all sorts of things. So when you think about what is the origin of religion, I think before even like, oh, I'm going to stare out into space and come up with these really fanciful understandings of God, it's probably mystical experiences. In this context, Otto suggests four stages of religious progress, the third being implied, the worship of demons, the worship of gods, inferior forms of worship of God, and the highest level of all where the worship of God is at its purest, which is, he would argue, Christianity. In his sections on the last two of his elements, the holy other and the element of fascination, the writer refers again to demonic dread as the primitive starting point of the numinous experience. Having established early in the book by page 40 exactly what he means by the numinous and the experience of it, Otto goes on to explore various ramifications of the idea. Much of this kind of material seems to have no bearing on the development of ideas of the sacred in the 20th century and is irrelevant to the purposes of this site. So we shall skip it, as has been suggested. Okay, Yana, the profane. Actually, let's just skip that. The awfulness of God. Also worthy of attention is Otto's efforts in in his chapters on the Numinous in the Old Testament. In the, in the New Testament and in Luther to emphasize that the rise of the rational and Judeo-Christian tradition did not eliminate the non-rational numinous, although I would say as it continued with Protestantism, it actually did. In particular, he reminds the reader of the continuing presence of the awfulness aspect as, it, as in ideas of dread and inspiring, vengeful, and wrathful God. Now, when you look at Protestantism, the Eucharist is symbolic, so they don't have the mystery of the Eucharist. They don't have the mystery of the liturgy. They don't have the mystery of the sacraments. They have the Bible, of which they took out 13 books, of which there's infinite forms of interpretation. And so you can see how Protestantism really, even though, again, he was Lutheran, began to smash out the uh, the mystical. In the chapter on the Numinous in the Old Testament, Otto discusses the transition of the Old Testament God from an early Yahweh, still bearing traces of the demonic dread, to the pre-God stage of the Numinous, to an Elohim in whom the rational aspect outweighs the Numinous, though the latter continues to be very much present. And the New Testament, likewise, Otto looks at the balance between non-rational and rational, Here the rational aspect of God reaches its consummation, but the numinous aspect has not been lost. Thus Otto sees the numinous in New Testament references to a God of vengeance who will destroy wicked men. The author also notably sees St. Paul's doctrine of predestination as non-rational and springing up from the numinous. Well, again, who knows as a Lutheran what he thought that meant. With regard to Luther, Otto argues that the non-rational in the reformer's religion has come to be ignored. The Lutheran school has itself not done justice to the numinous side of the Christian idea of God. By the exclusively moral interpretation it gave to the terms, it distorted the meaning of holiness and wrath. The evolutionary context. It is a measure of the importance of, and you have to remember, all these scholars are wrapped up in Darwinian presuppositions. It is a measure of the importance of the theme of religious progress in Otto that when he gets to it, he allots nearly as as much space to it as he has done the analysis of the experience of the Mysterium Tremendum. Clearly, it has to be significant that Eliade and others choose to turn a blind eye to the aspect of Otto. The writer starts his treatment by placing the whole matter in an evolutionary context. He seems to express the view that the human nature has been unchanged since humans became humans. The history of human humanity begins with man. We must presuppose man as a being analogous to ourselves in natural propensities and capacities. Yeah, because Darwinian Wallace theory of evolution is stupid. Um, Human predisposition for religious experience. So religious growth has occurred not because of any development in human capacities, but because of a predisposition towards religious experience That is always present but only gradually awakened. The writer emphasizes that this predisposition is a characteristic not just of individuals but of the whole human race. Otto goes on to identify and discuss a series of phenomena he associates with the earliest expressions of the human predisposition for religion. His eight phenomena are not of religion as he understood it, but of pre religion. He begins with magic, worship of the dead, ideas regarding souls and spirits. Uh, belief that natural objects have powers and that can be manipulated by spells, belief in natural objects like mountains and the sun uh, and the moon are actually alive, fairy tales. The more advanced are beliefs in demons, pre-deities, so to speak, notions of pure and impure. Religion proper, according, you know, again, this is for auto, starts when when feelings promoted by the disposition for religious experience are no longer projected onto things out there in the natural world, but are accounted for in terms of God's. From then on, progress of religion is a matter of gradual refinement of people's understanding of the experience of the divine till the culmination in Christianity. Note Otto's view of Christianity as the end product of religious development. Christianity stands out in complete superiority of over all sister religions, according to Rudolf Otto. The motive force for driving religious progress, now that human predisposition for religious experience does not explain how religious progress took place, how humanity gradually advanced towards Christianity, there had to have come some mechanism or mechanisms to drive things forward. At the very end of his main text, Otto points to, quote, three factors by which religion comes into being in history. But not For the first time, he expresses himself obscurely. The general idea seems to be that it is basically a matter of culminative effect of the interactions between the human predisposition to religion and the contingent events of human history, somewhat like the interactions between nature and nurture, heredity and environment and the development of human individuals, one might suppose. A specific type of historical event that auto-draws his argument is the emergence of particular people far more sensitive to the numinous than their fellows who sensitize those around them. These special individuals include the Bible prophets and preeminently Jesus, of course, as the writer points out in the final words of the main text. As incidentally, we shall comment. Okay, so that's the end. That's the end of that. So that that was a good introduction, again, to the works of Rudolf Otto. Of Rudolf Otto. Not everybody has... Um, has known who he is or understood it. And of course, I want to, I want to end by the last three definitions of mysticism. So we've been focusing pretty heavily on union with the divine union with the divine union with the divine, but there's three more quick ones that I want to hit real quick. One is mysticism as an altered state of consciousness Mysticism as an altered state of consciousness. These are approaches that tend to focus on trances, drugs, and ecstasy as the precursors or markers of what is mystical. And so they focus on, obviously, the temporary, uh, the, how ex- temporary these experiences are, and the long process or effects that it might have. How are these experiences deemed mystical? One might ask if the definition is just based on the alteration of one's consciousness. That can occur in a multitude of ways. The second one, or the third definition, is mysticism as an intuitive insight and enlightenment. Some emphasize intuitive understanding, deeper meaning, hidden truths, resolution to life's problems. This is another understanding of what mysticism does, that if you have a real mystical encounter, often you're led with an answer. You've put something together. Uh, God, per se, will allow you to... Um, resolve problems in your life. It will they'll, they'll, come to con- specific conclusions, right? It will resolve things. This is the mysticism as an intuitive insight and enlightenment. And so when you look, you can find in Buddhism, for example, uh, this concept plays pretty pervasively. So when you think of what is enlightenment, well, it's, it tends to be a cognitive faculty, when you find somebody illuminated, I'm not talking about our Christian understanding with the Holy Spirit, but generally speaking, um, that, uh, you know, there's there's both of which are cognitive faculties illumination, enlightenment. But you find like Bodhi mind. Bodhi mind in Buddhism is this idea that somehow uh, mystical understanding, mysticism, mystical experiences are going to align your cognitive categories with that of the buddha bodhi mind bodhi mind so we see this third definition as mysticism as intuitive insight uh it's not dismissive it actually brings some weight to it bodhi mind satori if anybody's ever looked into zen buddhism zen buddhism the whole point of these long periods of um of meditation, of koans. What are koans? These paradoxical claims. What is the sound of one hand clapping? That's a famous one. Well, does one hand clapping make a sound? Again, koans, then these Japanese koans are like contradictory, paradoxical, ironical statements. And they aid one to reach a point of satori, which is really a sort of blissful insight. It's an intellectual thing. Well, that's mystical. And so mysticism certainly has this uh, intuitive, cognitive capacity. There's a mental medium. Something happens cognitively during these mystical experiences. So you have Bodhi mind, Satori, enlightenment, illumination, um, Vipassana, and Hinduism, which is uh, all point to a sort of cognitive process. It's like an like enlightenment, illuminated seeing, a seeing with your mind. And that's what you do. That's what I'm trying to do with these streams, right? If I'm trying to bring out all this information and connect dots, in a way, what I'm trying to do is provide new insight, literally new sight, mental sight, the eye of your mind, so to speak, literally seeing new horizons and vistas with new information. And the fourth definition of mysticism is that of human transformation, human transformation. Some argue it is more than just an experience, but about the human transformation. And as I said, Bernard McGinn, um, the most famous scholar on Christian mysticism, this is what he argues, this is what he argues, that it has to do with the transformation of the human subject. So anyways, guys, uh, that is a lot of ranting and raving. uh, To conclude tonight's stream on the Mysterium Tremendum, An Introduction to Mysticism. And if you guys would be interested in checking out the second half of this stream, please come become a website member for $5 a month. You can do so following this link right here. I would greatly, greatly appreciate it if you could become a website member using that link um, right there. Uh, So that concludes today's stream, guys. I am going to get into some of the Super Chats. First super Chat comes from Keenan Beats. Shout out to Keenan. God bless you, Keenan, man. God bless you and your family. Hope you're doing well. I know that you. Uh, I think you just moved out of Cali, uh, so I hope everything. Hope your your move went well, brother. Thank you for all the great beats. We'll have to play. I'll play Keenan the next next intro. Um, so Keenan says thanks for everything. Well, thank you, Keenan. Thank you for all your music. Thank you for your talents. Thank you for your support. Uh, I greatly appreciate it, brother. Uh, thank you very, very much. And Stevie donates $5 and says, Hey, David, I met Jim Jotras on Friday. Oh, that's nice. Um, He said, uh, Jay had him on months ago. He's pretty swell and would make a good guess. Yeah, Um, I, I know who Jim Jotras is. Uh, I'd be open to it sometime. I got a lot on my plate right now, but... uh. I'll definitely reach out to him in the near future and see if he wants to come on and, and chat. Chat about some global politics. I know that's sort of his uh his his forte. His forte. Um guys, please smash that like. I know that a lot of people have left. Smash that like. I guess we were a little too heady today. I guess all the heads are still here. Um so uh please smash that like. Uh, I'll definitely reach out to Jotris and have him on. That looks like that's all the Super Chat. So if, you, if anybody's still watching and you'd like to support, uh, please throw in a Super Chat using Streamlabs if you can. link's posted uh, at the top of the live chat. It's also in the video description. And uh, if you prefer using YouTube, you can do that as well. But the second half of today's stream, as I said, is focusing on mystical practices and different world religions. That is up on the website. Uh, I will have that ready to go. Uh, yeah, so it's already it's already up. So once I get off here, I will make it public over on the website. If that's something you'd be interested in, please check that out. Also, um, if you guys would be interested in setting up a one-on-one, if you'd like to talk about anything uh regarding regarding uh philosophy theology world religions magic or whatever you can do so using that link right there you can set up a one on one so shout out for all my uh crypto guys uh, crypto's been up the last few days thank god that's been nice um but uh yeah that's that's been a good last last few days for sure so, you might have any questions or anything. Um, I uh, Dangerfield Henley, thank you so much, brother, for sharing all the links. I really, really appreciate it, man. God bless you. Uh, thank you so much, man, for sharing all the links and stuff in the live chat. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, just scrolling through the live chat here to see if anybody... Um, uh Mikhail the King of Kings said, God bless you. God bless you, Mikhail King of Kings, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for being here, brother. Um, um I don't see anybody who who tagged me in a live chat comment. Um so anyway, guys, if you have any questions or comments before I hop off here, anything in the chat. Um Solana to the moon, John and not <laughs> Yeah, well, let me know if uh, let me know if you guys are if you guys got insights on a good crypto. Uh, I'm basically just luckily I got a full I got a full Ethereum coin, so I'm gonna hold on to that baby. Hopefully Ethereum goes to the moon, that would be nice. i would be nice. I have some. You guys have, do you have any Stellar or Anchor? They have been killing me. They have not gone up since the whole thing crashed. So. Anyways, guys, um, I am going to hop off here. Thank you, guys, for still being here. Please smash that like for anybody uh, who has not yet. Uh, John Anon said, are you going to do a crypto stream? Yes, John Anon, I am. I'm going to do, in the near future, a stream on a theology of money. So I wanted to do – I'm not going to stream for the next two days. That's for sure. So I'm going to be focusing on schoolwork, writing, doing research. Probably Friday I'll come out with another stream. I was thinking about doing um, mysticism and orthodoxy. There's a lot more to talk about there that I'd like to I'd like to talk about. And I'd also like to do a stream on on the theology of money or how Orthodox lay men and women can understand money. Uh, I was looking online, and so much of it was talking about mammon, mammon, can't worship two masters. Okay, agreed. But now let's say you're not worshiping mammon. How do you understand money? How How should you think about money? And so I talked with my priest this past week about that, and he gave me some interesting insights. Um, he actually had a great story about how he was, a, a, he was an electrician before he became an Orthodox priest, and he was much older in his life. He was a minister, but it wasn't until he was uh, 60 years old that he d- became an Orthodox priest and was taking over a church. And so he retired from a, as an electrician, and he told me that he had $100,000 in his bank account, and he was expecting going to this church where I guess they're for $10,000, uh, literally a tenth of what he owned, He was going, he felt like he was going to have to live off the amount he saved up, his retirement, all this different stuff. And he was very willing to do that. And he told me that when he left that place, I think it was eight years or 12 years later, he had exactly $100,000 in the bank. And that he, he was talking about how God, it's funny how God blesses us. And he challenged me to try to give more than God. That we can't. That there is no, uh, uh, there is no giving more than God, and he was talking about how he was willing to give away what he made, and in so turn, and, and in turn, he was able to be a priest for I forget how many years, and maintain the same exact amount of money in his bank account that he thought he was going to have to spend, and so his 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 uh, his advice was to work towards. The things that you know you need to work towards, do the things that you know you need to do, and God typically blesses when the timing is right. So I was going to look, uh, read a few more articles, find some scriptural references, dive into the Bible, and think about um, different points about how we should understand money. Money shouldn't be something we're trying to hoard. I think the parable of the man that fills his barns, these two barns, and then he dies— And then scripture, I think Christ calls him a fool. So uh, I don't think wealth is something we should hoard, but there wasn't a whole lot of useful sources on like lay family men. Okay, I want to have a family. I'm a lay dude. Give me some insight on, on money. And there just really wasn't a whole lot there. I was surprised. So, anyways, yeah, I will definitely do that in the future, and I'll talk about, I'll be talking about um, crypto. Interested to hear your thoughts on history of money from gold to crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Soul Link. Yeah, I know, right? They changed uh, Jamie Deluxe's hundred bucks fee to transfer hundred bucks worth of Ethereum. I felt like, guess that's how they get you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, And then C Insignia said, quick hello to everyone. Hope you are all well. I can't stick around as it's getting late here. Have a great stream, DPH. I'll catch you next one. Hopefully, God bless you all. Well, I just finished. So, yeah, I know Monero. John Smith said buy Monero. Monero, I know you can do a lot more with it. And it mostly has to do with the blockchain. So, I don't have any Monero. But I heard that one in terms of like long-term crypto. I heard that one's probably the best. But, I, again, I'm no expert, you know, so I'm no expert. I'm not telling you. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not telling anybody to do anything. But, anyways, guys, uh, yeah, gold, silver is money, but you can't eat it, you know. Like, the thing about gold and silver or even crypto, like, say power goes out tomorrow. Say the global collapse happens tomorrow. People – aren't going to want your gold or your silver necessarily unless they already have a lot of goods the exchanging of goods if you're gonna barter for example if you had bunches of boxes of cigarettes cigarette cartridges boxes but you don't smoke that that is something that people wouldn't be able to buy that you could barter with you know uh, so I was trying to think about that is like if you were if everything went down what goods could you buy now that you could barter in the future? That would actually be worth quite a bit for those who would want it. I don't know something to think about, but I have I have uh, silver. I would like more gold, honestly. Uh, I would like to have gold and more silver, but it, it's it's difficult. Monero is what newbies think Bitcoin is. Yeah, yeah, John Smith. Yeah, that's absolutely right because they don't realize the blockchain is totally detectable and everything. Exactly, John. Yeah, John Smith, uh, it's truly private and secure. Yeah, John Smith, I think you and I are on the same page regarding Monero and why it is uh, a more advantageous cryptocurrency. I don't have any yet, so I need to get some Monero. I don't have any of that yet. But anyways, guys, uh, it doesn't look like anybody has any more Super Chats. I'm going to hop off here. Uh hope everybody has a wonderful, wonderful evening. Yes, John Anon says, store up food, generator, light, supplies, ammo. Exactly. Though That is the pragmatic stuff. Like, like say you had a room full of gold and you didn't have any of that stuff. You're not exactly in a really advantageous position. So uh, Dangerfield Henley said, My bud wrote the number one bestseller Amazon book on blockchain. Check it out. Name is Baxter Hines. Oh, Baxter Hines. I've never heard of this. Oh, yeah. Digital finance. Wow. All right. I'll definitely check it out. Anyways, uh, Danger Henley, thank you so much, brother, for modding. Uh, Good night, everyone. God bless you, and I will see you again in the near future. I hope everybody has a wonderful night. Make sure to smash that like, and I will check you guys out.